Let's pray together. Father, it's our prayer that in the power of your spirit, you would wake us up. You would help us to see with the eyes of faith your power and your glory. Would you help us to behold the beauty of Jesus, the conquering lion, the lamb that was slain. Help us to see the beauty of your glory, to appreciate your holiness, to know that by your power you are working for good even in the chaos of the world. Father, we ask that as we turn to your word that you would make us attentive, help us to hear what you're saying as we read it. I pray that you would guide me as I expound this and bring it out and apply it. Would you forgive my sins, give me clarity of thought, and use even these words for your purpose. We pray together silently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name's Matt. Glad to be with you today. We invite our young people to Children's Church. I also remind you that uh, after the service today, uh, Miss Becky and several of her helpers and friends will be gathering in G8. They'll be uh, inviting uh, our young folks to come back. There's intentionally not a specific age range on that, Uh, and uh, parents are welcome to sit in with your kids too, but they'll be talking about some of these themes and and taking big picture ideas of the book of Revelation and uh, connecting them to our kids in interactive ways. I'm excited about it, and uh, we invite you to come too, and, and if your kids, you know, are able to be in there on their own while you're eating uh, bagels, then that's welcome too, um, but they, are, they remain under your supervision during that time. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of as an extension of that, we're doing a reading program in, in these months uh, and weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, we are moving through a book of the Bible, the final book of the Bible called Revelation, and uh, we're doing it in multiple ways. Our kids are doing some things after church. We are, uh, many of us, reading on our website. We have uh, daily devotionals that come out as we read through the entirety of the book together. In our Sunday morning uh, service, in, in the sermons, we're picking out the reading text that would be for that day as we go through the book of Revelation. So over the course of these eight weeks, we're going to have eight sermons that move through the scope of the book of Revelation. Uh, So as we do it, uh, you'll hear me at times referencing, saying things like, well, maybe you read this past week. Uh, I'm not assuming that everyone read it, but it is an invitation to go deeper. The things we're talking about here are at times complex and deep. And sometimes I'll summarize broad things pretty quickly. And you have the the choice either to trust me or to read more about it. And you can do that on the website. So uh, hopefully we'll have a good balance of those things as we move forward. We're in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 5 verses uh, 1 to 10. This is a continuation of a heavenly vision John is seeing uh, through the power of the Spirit in visionary image, worship in heaven. Now, the book of Revelation will end where, where the presence of God comes from heaven and dwells on earth. But now we're invited to think of God in his glory in the heavenly realm being worshiped and appreciated. And, and yet, even in heaven, we'll see today, there's a drama that's unfolding that impacts the realities of earth. 
This is great stuff. Exciting stuff. At times, a little confusing. So fasten your seatbelts, buckle up, here we go. Revelation 5, verses 1 to 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I recognize uh, maybe some of you don't come to church often, and, and maybe you're thinking, I had, I had no idea what to expect at church, but after I read that part of Revelation, you're thinking, that was not what I expected. I have no idea what's going on there. There's a lion, there's a lamb, there's horns, there's eyes and spirits, and, and, and then people are weeping or rejoicing, and I don't know why. Now, I'll let you in on a secret, and that is that yeah, many people here who maybe grew up in the church, who've been Christians for a long period of time, they're feeling the same way. Now, there are m more parts of the Bible like this than we often realize. The prophetic books of the Bible, and we'll, we'll attempt to show that, have, have many, many themes that are in common with Revelation. In fact, if you were to look on page 7 of your bulletin, you'll see a reference from the book of Daniel. If you read that carefully, you'll recognize that's really similar. A lot of similar language and ideas and themes. We'll also mention today an important Old Testament book, the book of Zechariah. And already we've seen that Zechariah has imagery that's pulled into Revelation, the lampstands, the, the horsemen that will be introduced in chapter 6. There's all kinds of overlap. But it's still not particularly easy or familiar with us. Some of the ways prophetic books work aren't particularly familiar. And we can often have the sense that we don't know what's going on. And even more troubling, we don't know why the people are acting the way they are. Why is John weeping? He's weeping loudly. 
The modern people might say they're ugly crying. I'm not sure if that's what John thought of himself, but he's weeping out loud. Like he's not just a tear on his face, he's weeping loudly. And then another part, the, the, the lamb, all right, explain that in a second. The lamb takes the scroll and then everyone falls down and worships and their joy is so overflowing that they actually have a, they sing something that's never been sung before. They're expressing in this new dynamic, uh, explosive way. What will happen here in verses 11 and following is the, the song gets picked up, not only by these the angels in heaven, the creatures in heaven, this heavenly vision, but it says every creature on earth begins to sing. That's an amazing celebration, right? And you're thinking, I don't know what's going on, and I don't know why they're acting that way. All right, some of you may have felt that way a couple weeks ago. Uh, you, you don't watch American football uh, very often, but you heard the Super Bowl had good advertisements, so you went to a party, you had good chips and dip, and you don't know why the people around you are acting the way they do. Right? People who don't watch football sometimes watch for the Super Bowl, and sometimes the people get really excited and they start to cheer and it doesn't make any sense. Maybe, you know, they get these numbers on the screen, fourth and one, all of a sudden everyone lines up and it looks like the most boring play ever. They push forward one yard and all your friends cheer. You're like, what? Why, why are they celebrating that? And other times, right, it looks like something great happens and this guy in, in striped shirts uh, he, he picks up a, a yellow handkerchief from the field and all your friends start to cry. <laughs> everyone, in, 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 everyone wearing green is throwing things at the television and you say, I don't know why they're responding this way. Why are they weeping out loud in this situation? Well, the answer is, of course, context. All right, if you know what's happening in the game, you understand the structure, the meaning of those symbols and activities begin to make sense. We're going to do three things as we look at the passage today, and then we'll apply it. So four things. Three, three, three questions. Uh, uh, the first is we're just going to review how symbolism works in prophecy, and we'll look at the symbolism of this passage to understand who the characters are and what they're doing. And secondly, we'll, we'll ask, why is John weeping out loud? Third, why is everyone worshiping? And then fourth, most importantly, what does it mean for us? So we'll move through those uh, three things, and then the fourth, we'll apply it. So a quick refresher on symbolism. How does symbolism uh, work? Uh, whenever we talk of the book of Revelation or of any prophecy of being symbolic, sometimes that can sound confusing to us, and we might think, well, that means it's not real. When someone talks about symbolism in, in the Bible, we, we, get, we get a little suspicious and say, maybe they mean it's not real, which is the furthest thing from the truth. What, what's happening in the, in the Bible when something is symbolic? It's describing a real thing with a symbolic image. Now, we, we do this all the time. We're, we're just not always aware of it. But in the context, we understand that, uh, in, in, for instance, we often speak about, go back to our sports teams, we speak about our sports teams by their mascot, Right? We, we might speak of, the, the, in our city, the Pittsburgh baseball team as being the Pirates. Right? You recognize, even if you go to a baseball game, right, uh, they might do these all sorts of eye patches and Jolly Rogers and R and stuff like that. 
But there's actually not any real pirates there, right? It's symbolically describing our team. The only piracy going on is that of the owner of the team continuing uh, to steal money from Western Pennsylvania for a less than quality product. But I'm not biased, am I? Still, it's kind of, yeah, I get a response on that. <laughs> All right. Symbolically, we can talk about these things, right? We, when, we, when we talk about our politics, we can talk about elephants and donkeys, and people know what they're talking about. In this passage, there's a bunch of symbolic things happening. It doesn't mean they're not real. A real thing is being described with a symbol. So we understand the difference between symbolism and, and literalism. It, it's, it's the nature of heavenly realities and spiritual realities that we have to use symbols. How else would we talk about God in heaven? How else would we talk about future realities but to describe them in symbolic terms? That's full of that throughout the Bible. Uh, for instance, when we look at the passage uh, this week, we see a reference to a lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you're familiar with biblical language, you recognize it's not a literal lion. It's referring to Jesus. We see that again and again in the Bible. What, what is, what, when we hear, we hear in, in the text, John, John hears the voice from one of the elders, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse 5, the root of David has conquered. It's not a literal root or a literal lion, but it's talking about Jesus. It describes Jesus as one connected to David, one who is standing in the tribe of David, conquering as the king they've longed for. This is the power of symbolism. It carries all of that with us. I mean, he could just say, all right, Jesus is king. But when he, when he says it that way, we think of the majesty of a lion, the king of the jungle, and all of that power is brought forward. It's part of the power of the way prophetic imagery works. And it grabs us, it stirs us, it shakes us. Here's the other thing imagery does, and that's really interesting in this passage, is what John does is he not only uses symbols, but he layers his symbols. All right? By doing this, he can put two things together at once. He, he, this is how, this is interesting, he does this often in the book of Revelation. He hears a voice say, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then in the vision he sees, not a lion, but a lamb standing as one slain. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? We've already sung about this a little bit in, a, in our, in our um, worship, and we'll sing about it a little bit more. But what the Bible is saying is that Jesus is at the same time the lion conquering from the tribe of Judah and the lamb slain. That through his death on the cross, through his sacrifice, where Jesus fulfills all of the all of the uh, Old Testament pictures of atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrificial Passover lamb, and through his death on the cross, he conquers. That's a really important word here. It says he conquers because when, when John was speaking to these seven churches in Asia Minor, his, his pastor speaking to them in their situation, he was urging them to remain faithful in the midst of opposition. He called them to conquer. To the one who conquers, they will receive the consolation of God. Well, Jesus is the one who conquered through death and in his resurrection. That's what stands. That's what emerges here. 
So, so what, what John is telling us here is he said, if you want to understand Jesus correctly, you see him as both the conquering lion and the lamb who was slain. It's a really powerful thing, isn't it? But, but he goes on to describe Jesus with all other kinds of symbolic language. He's describing a real thing about Jesus, but we don't read it literally. We read it symbolically to understand what's real. For instance, uh, what do we see about Jesus? The, the, the lamb who has been slain, verse 6, has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that went out into all the earth. Now, uh, again, uh, we know very clearly Jesus is not literally a lamb or a lion. He's a human. He is the real divine God, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. That's what the Bible says is literally true of Jesus. But he is like a lion, like a sacrificial lamb, and what's being communicated here is actually a familiar way of speaking in the Bible, not familiar to us in the you know, 21st century America, but in the Bible, as in many ancient cultures, a horn represents power and strength. We'll see that referenced other times in Revelation to have, when we say, sometimes you might read a psalm that says, oh God, lift it up my horn. And you think, what is he talking about? It's a king saying, God strengthened me and, and gave me power. In the Bible, uh, and particularly in the book of Revelation, sometimes the symbolism is, is, comes with the number. When we say something has seven in the Bible, it's understood to refer to completeness and wholeness. When God created the world, He did it in seven days, right? And that's sort of the, the first reference to that image. And again and again, we see, especially in the book of Re uh, a Revelation, a repetition of seven, showing the complete work of God. So when, when he says the lamb has seven horns, he's saying the power of the lamb, the authority of the lamb that was slain is complete. It's, it's perfected. It's a, it's, a, it's a wholeness of that power. And, and the lamb having seven eyes would be you know, kind of weird for an actual lamb. I can't picture how that would be at all pleasant to look at. What John is saying is he sees everything. And he connects it, he connects the eyes with the seven spirits of God that have gone out into the world. And again, uh, uh, we recognize what he's saying here is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in its fullness is going to all parts of the earth in its totality. Right? If we tried to interpret that literally, we'd end up with not the Trinity, but something like the, the ninety, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, 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 Spirit. It's not seven spirits, literally. It's the fullness of the Spirit. Now, John's audience understood it. It's not as familiar to us, but as we listen and read and we look at how biblical prophecy works, we see these patterns that develop here. And in many places, John will describe to us what's going on. Well, that's the, the power of the imagery of, of what's happening. It's a celebration of Jesus with His victory over death. But the second thing we want to ask is why John was weeping. Why was he weeping? Well, there's, a, there's a, a scroll that's visible. There's the Ancient of Days, God the Father in, in, in His authority, God Almighty. This image wouldn't make any sense if we didn't understand what God revealed of the Trinity. And, and yet God the Son, the, the, the incarnate Lord Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb is slain, is beside Him and He comes to Him. Uh, but there is a scroll that is sealed. Guess how many seals are on the scroll? Seven. 
Later, there'll be trumpets sounding. Guess how many trumpets? Seven. Bowls of wrath, plagues poured out on the earth. Guess how many? Seven. Again and again and again, we see these patterns. So there's seven seals on the scroll, and the voice asks, who is worthy to open it? And no one is found worthy to open the scroll. And, and, and John begins to weep loudly. Why is he weeping? Well, the, the idea of a, a God having in his presence a scroll or a book, a recorded record, is a common theme in the Bible. It, we see a par- this parallel passage that's probably at the root of much of this. Daniel chapter 7, it mentions a, a book that is there. And then later at the end of the book of Revelation, the books are opened in the final chapter and the final judgment. So what's going on here? In, in, I think the, the way to think about it is in a sense that the book shows a recording of history. Now, sometimes when we see the books, it records all that has happened We see the works of all that have done being revealed on the last day. The books are opened. But from a heavenly perspective, the same thing works in reverse. The the scroll that, that John sees here is essentially history before it happens. It is, as theologians might say, technically, the decrees of God. It is the plan of God to bring salvation into the world. But in, in when John sees the scroll locked up, sealed, he sees the plan of God stuck. That, that's the moment that he's being brought into here. What will happen, we, we know this because we, I've been reading ahead, maybe you have done that too. Here's what happens. Jesus takes the scroll and he begins to open the seals. What happens? Stuff happens. History happens. The world shakes. And it begins a series of events that culminates in the return of Jesus and the restoration of everything. That's where the book ends. So we we say not just history in the scroll, but we would say more specifically redemptive history. God's plan to shake the nations, remove human opposition, establish His eternal kingdom, and renew everything. That's bound up in the scroll. But John is invited experientially, so to speak, as we walk into the vision with him to, to pause for a moment before the sealed scroll. And we, and we, I think, are invited to share with him that moment of weeping as we ask, when, when will it happen? Actually, there's many characters in the book of Revelation that will ask that uh, very poignantly just here as we get to the fifth seal in the next chapter. There, we see a vision of uh, Christians who have, who have suffered, it says, and we get the impression that if they, either they've been killed for their faith or they've been suffered, deep, suffered deeply for it, they are, they are with God in the presence of God and they're crying out, how long? Maybe today that's your that's your question. John invites us in, into that space, the space of, of, of wrestling with the reality that the world we live in is often deeply painful. And we find ourselves asking God, when is it going to change? When are you going to do something? Why does it seem like we're stuck in, in cycles of repetition 
Cycles of destruction. Why does it seem as if uh, forces of evil are winning? When are you going to do something about my life? What I think is the power of this book. As we stand with John looking at a scroll that appears to be sealed, we find ourselves asking the question, when is God going to work? Well, thankfully, the vision doesn't end there. And that's actually maybe the big thing that's being communicated here. Maybe the big thing in the book of Revelation is that God is acting. After all, the the title of the book, Revelation, means something is being revealed. What's being revealed? What is being revealed is that God is working in the world because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is working in the world to shake the earthly kingdom, to bring His eternal kingdom, and to eventually one day restore everything. That's what, that's what is being revealed. John is revealing to these seven churches in Asia Minor, you're part of the story too. And so, as the Lamb comes forward to take the scroll to open the seals, to unfold the plan, to enact the salvation of God in the world, heaven erupts in worship. That's what's happening here. They they say, it's happening. God's doing something. The salvation of God, the restoration of all things, it's, it's going to begin. It's why we're reading this passage, I'm convinced that what what John is really talking about here, that the majority of the action, not all of it, but a whole lot of the action in Revelation isn't simply a far-off thing, but it's describing the way right now God is shaking the heavens to bring His eternal kingdom, which, however, leads us to a problem. Uh, in one sense, we recognize, point three, why it is that they would be worshiping and celebrating when the scroll is opened. But if you read ahead a little bit, the opening of the scroll doesn't do what we might think when we're looking at this scene. The, the cause for celebration won't be as obvious as we read forward. So we know, we know where it ends up. I've told you where it ends up. I read ahead, maybe you have too. In the end, Jesus comes back, he wins, everything's renewed and restored. That's where it's going to go. That's the great completion. Evil is fully and finally defeated. Good is uh, completely enthroned. The human experience is renewed and redeemed, and we enter as recreated creatures into the presence of God for eternity. That's the Christian hope. But between here and Revelation chapter 21, a bunch of tough stuff happens. Here's what here's will happen. Again, I'm writing ahead, so I'm reading ahead, but, but this is where we're going. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, after all the creatures on earth get done worshiping and singing praise to God, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, opens a seal. He opens the first four seals. And four horsemen emerge and ride across the earth, bringing death and destruction. Now, again, you heard everything we were talking about, and the, the redemption of God, the lamb that was slain, the lion of Judah, and you might think, that's not what I was expecting. I was expecting the, the <laughs> this is spontaneous, so we'll see how it works. Maybe you think, I was expecting the, the, the unicorn 
of rainbows to gallop across the, the stage with light and marshmallows and happiness. Instead, we're introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what happens. When Jesus opens the four scrolls, the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride out onto the earth. And they bring with them oppression, war, famine, plague, and death. And death kind of surrounds all of them. It's, a, it's not an easy thing to read. I mean, we'll read about it this week in greater detail if you're reading on the blog, but I'll just briefly summarize now. Great, uh, great debate about how to read them. But because the fourth horseman is associated with death and Hades, and at the end of Revelation, death and Hades are thrown into the eternal fire, they're viewed to be enemies of God. The majority of scholars say the best way to read the four horsemen of the apocalypse is to realize that these are representative of forces of evil, things that are bad, that are nonetheless used by God for a good purpose. That's important for us to think about. In fact, that's a very, very steady biblical theme. God in His power and His sovereignty is able to use bad things for good purposes. That's what's going to happen. Uh, oppression, warfare, uh, plague, and uh, famine. You can tell I'm doing it from memory here. <laughs> They're riding across the earth, shaking things up. A third of the earth, John will say, is, is uh, affected by these types of things as they go out. It's actually something Jesus himself said is, is characteristic of the age of the church. And he spoke in uh, Matthew 24, we call it the Olivet Discourse. The disciples said, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When's the end of the world? Jesus said, let me tell you what is not the end of the world. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, destructions. That's not the end. That's just the beginning of the birth pangs. That is life now in the age of the church. In other words, what is going to happen as the seals begin to open is that is that God is going to use the broken structures of our world for His purpose. He's going to shake things up and build His kingdom. That doesn't immediately seem like good news to us, but I want you to go back to the context and remember why this is such good news. The, the church that John was writing to is a church that was suffering. They, they, they were, they were uh, many ways even at their best, small, insignificant, and weak. They were struggling within. False teachers had risen up. Some of them, in their own prosperity, become complacent. They had lost their first love. They become to be, as John said in one place, like lukewarm water in the mouth of Jesus. What's worse, the difficulties from outside were beginning to emerge I think there's strong reasons to believe the book was written towards the end of the first century, and we do know that during the 90s, the emperor Domitian began the first empire-wide persecution of Christians. And so when he says to, to one church in Pergamum, an hour of trial is going to come upon the world, it does fit and match with that historic circumstance. If you were to say to Christians living in that situation with those difficulties, with that growing pressure... Living under the illusion of the eternal empire of Rome and all its power and all its human glory. And if you were to say to them, well, 
everything's going to stay status quo, that would not be good news. When we recognize the brokenness of our world, when we recognize the entrenched opposition to God that is found in most of our human systems, when we even see in our own hearts the steady return to complacency, to selfishness, and our search for comfort to lose our first love, we recognize that status quo isn't a good thing. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the end of the book, Hebrews chapter 12, the, the preacher says, God shakes the heavens and the earth so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. We who are receiving an unshakable kingdom worship with reverence and awe. That's really the message of Revelation. Jesus is going to enact the building of an unshakable kingdom and it will happen as the sovereign power of God guides even troublesome, even we might say even otherwise evil events. He will work through disasters and difficulties and upheavals. Does God do that? Only all the time. Let me close with a couple quick applications. What is, what is Jesus doing here as He shakes the, the earth? As He shakes the heavens? He's bringing a people ransomed by His blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What happens when the world gets shaken? The gospel advances. It doesn't advance every time the world is shaken, but let's put it the other way. The gospel rarely advances when the world is not shaken. Real briefly, in summer 2016, my family and I had an opportunity during my sabbatical to go to Athens to minister with the Greek church to refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq. What we saw and got to experience, testified by many people, is that God used the shaking of the nations through these terrible wars to move people and to create inroads for the gospel. People groups that have been resistant to the gospel since the 8th century have seen breakthroughs in power and building of the church that we haven't seen ever before. As we, as we met in, in, in Greece, and one of the Greek pastors told me, he said, the church we have of Iranians is growing like crazy. The people have been shaken, who know the realities of famine and warfare, and all of these terrible things have been shaken from their land. They've seen in this warfare the depth of human wickedness. There is an openness gospel is being built there, a hope of an eternal kingdom, a faith in the Lamb who was slain. It's beginning to emerge in powerful ways. He said, but let me tell you, the Greeks, they're pretty comfortable. They haven't been shaken. I mean, they had some economic difficulties, but not like that. I, I became a Christian at the end of my time in college because God shook my life. I was pretty happy and complacent on my own. I would rather do it myself. I'd rather be my, I would have rather be my own God, my own Lord, my own ruler for my own purposes. And he shook it. And I said, that's not going to work. I need help. Is God shaking you today? We, we, when we have terrible things happen to us, the view that God is king, that he's sovereign, doesn't mean that we, we stop calling the bad thing bad. War is bad. 
We long for the day when it's ended. The, the news is that in His unbelievable sovereign power, God can use a bad thing for a good purpose. Is God using some bad thing to wake you up? Monica prayed, wake us up, Spirit. That's a good prayer. Is God waking you up maybe in a difficulty that's shaking your life? Let me say this secondly, though. The picture of the Lamb opening the scroll reminds us that even when we suffer, the suffering may be allowed by God, but it's directed by His fatherly care. There is a limit. There is a promise that God who works for good in all things is restraining evil even now. He can, yes, He can use bad things for His purpose. You know how many bad things you didn't experience last week? Do you know how many terrible disasters didn't happen in our city last week? A lot. You think about it that way. And when we do experience a deep pain of brokenness entering into our lives, we can be confident that God not only will use it for good, but it's under His care. It's not out of control. The suffering in the world that we see is not the suffering of a world that's spinning out of control, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But it is... It is moderated, guided, constrained by our Heavenly Father. Third application of this, would you, and we're going to, it's going to, application you can join with right now. The application is that we can join with the heavenly host in worship. First, is God shaking you? How's He using it to draw you to Himself? Second, comfort in the midst of your shaking that God is sovereign over all things. But third, even now, we are invited to worship the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. He is conquering. He conquered through His death. In the midst of your suffering as the world shakes, as evil Cast a shadow over your life in any number of ways. We know God can use it. We know He can constrain it. Even then, it's still a mystery we don't understand. But we also know this, that Jesus entered in. He entered into the worst of human experiences. He took upon Himself the penalty for our sin. The only righteous a victim in the history of the world in an absolute sense. Jesus faced the horror of an oppressive regime. He faced uh, the injustice of his friends and family. And he suffered through that, earning our salvation, through that, earning our victory. He's worthy. Let's pray and we'll sing together.